to the Artist Plunge podcast, podcast exploring the curious relationship between artists and the other professions, day jobs, or past experiences that have allowed them to plunge into the art they create. I'm your host, Christy Darnell Batani. Well, it's the beginning of November, and I don't know what's going on in your world, but for me, it's the beginning of the perfect storm. Back-to-back art shows, which require two distinct bodies of new work, the social media to support them, family birthdays, and holiday events sneaking up around the corner. I'm not going to lie, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed. Which is why my guest this week, Amy Maracle, the author of the recent book, Draw Yourself Calm, was a godsend. Based in Massachusetts, Amy uses her professional experience as an art therapist to help people reduce their stress with a mindful, slow-drawing sketchbook practice. So take a deep breath, grab your micron pen and an inch or two of paper, and let's see what Amy is doing in the studio today. That is a match lighter. (laughs) That is a... You're whittling. You're whittling. That, I don't know. What is that, Amy? That's me opening my micron pen. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Isn't that funny? Like little things like that, that you, I mean, I do that a million times a day. So why don't I know what that sound is? But um, I suspect I just stumbled into even um, part of a mindfulness that I'm not very mindful of what's going on around (laughs) me and that I do every single day. Well, I don't think so, though, because, you know, I, I thought, you know, that is so subtle. It's kind of a little bit tricky, but it is it does tie right in with what I do. And so it is such a great, it is a great cue. And this will probably be your cue now when every time I bet when you uncap, especially because now I'm creating a mental suggestion, when you uncap your micron pen or your drawing pen, you're going to remember this conversation and remember to tune in to what you're experiencing in the moment, right? Because that's what I'm all about is tuning in through your senses to the experience of the moment. Well, in our case, through drawing and painting. I love that. I love that cueing it to something. Well, so let's before we get too much into the book and your practice, where are you today? I'm in my studio in Mansfield, Massachusetts, in the USA. Okay. And is that near your home or? Oh, no, it is in my home. (laughs) It is in your home. I love that. Well, I'm seeing this beautiful setting and I couldn't quite decide. And so for you, is your practice now a combination of being a therapist and working, providing um, art therapy works or what, what are you doing on a regular basis? Yeah, so that's a great question since I am an art therapist by training. So I don't do art therapy anymore. I haven't for a number of years. Um, but it is great to clarify because I think that, uh, art therapy is not as well known as some other types of more, let's say, talk-based therapy or say massage therapy and things like that. But it is, I'll clarify that first and the difference between what I do and art therapy. So art therapy would be like any other kind of talk therapy where, you know, it doesn't have to be, but typically you're in an office and then there's treatment goals and mental health goals. There may be a diagnosis of some sort uh, and you and the therapist are working together towards those mental health goals. And then you would use um, a variety of art 
of ways of making art and observing art process by the therapist to help you both understand what's going on and use an active form of uh, working through things, right? And so you can visualize and see on the page metaphors and things and then work with that together. And my work as an art therapist, I also had a lot of training in uh, trauma-informed training. And so that training separately was a lot of uh, sensory motor psychotherapy influence. And so it was a lot. I had training in something called sensory motor arousal regulation treatment, which just basically meant that there was a lot of tracking of what you are experiencing through the body and using like almost like gym type tools and weighted tools and vestibular tools. And so all of that training was fantastic for me because it really fit with what I knew as an art therapist and an expressive therapist about tuning into process and tracking and all of that. Then as I started moving from doing therapy and more and more into teaching, Mm -hmm. I've let that influence my work it, it influences my work tremendously because I realized how um, the mindfulness in my practice, right, tuning in through the sounds and sensations and, you know, like the watching, the, slowing down enough that I could watch ink fall into the page mm-hmm. or noticing the way the watercolor spreads or feeling the texture of the smooth pen in my hand. All of those cues brought me into the moment and then gave me such a richer experience as an artist and then also helped me to be way less judgmental, right? This is sounding familiar to mindfulness, right? And be present in the moment. And then also, obviously, it then opened up my imagination much further. And then I got much quicker progress in the product of what I was making by focusing on this very mindful practice. So that's how it infuses my teaching. And it's also very kind of student empowered. It's not um, that I'm the expert. It's that I'm presenting what I know. And then the student comes in with themselves and what they know that works. And they take what works from me and leave everything else to the side. And I really like that approach because it's great for them. And it's great for me. And I don't need to be the be all end all of anything. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, so are most of your students artists or are they just individuals that are looking for maybe a different way to approach a mindfulness practice? It's both. So it's folks who. So there's a a portion of folks who are established artists who have lost that spark and Mm -hmm. they want to get back to the root of why they began making art and they want to have a much more meaningful practice or they're burnt out. And then there's a big portion of people who have always wanted to make art, but felt intimidated, or maybe, you know, we're told it wasn't good enough and those sorts of things and need to approach it from a really permissive, playful, mindful place. And it addresses kind of that creative need and the grounding need at the same time. But I am not in charge of anybody's, uh, treatment plans or, you know, we're not working on their mental health goals. It does tend to help people feel better uh, as art can. Um, But that's, that's for them to address. 
Yeah. Well, let's, and I do want to come back to the therapy part of your career, but for now, let's stay with the the, the more traditional art. Did you come from a background in the arts? So, um, educationally, I would say not really. Um, My undergrad was in uh, I had a major in Spanish and like a smattering of minors and kind of <laughs> had my own. <laughs> Love liberal arts. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I had my own way with my schooling, <laughs> which was great. Um, and I did a lot of photography in college. And then previous to that, as a kid, I was I was very into writing and I did a lot of poetry and I did a little bit of drawing and lots of little crafty things, but I was much, much, much more into performance. I loved singing. I loved Mm -hmm. acting. I was in chorus. Like I was all about that. And then at some point I realized when I started having to think about what I really wanted to be when I grew up, I realized I have no desire to be famous. And if you don't get famous, it's all struggle if you're going to be an actor or, you know, or singer Mm -hmm. or something. And I was like, so really that's not the career choice for me because I really don't yeah. want to make it in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, then I had to start deciding what I would do for a real job. And then uh, and I was an activist doing human rights work, um, trying to influence U.S. policy towards Guatemala. And at the same time, was really lucky and was living in a town just outside of D.C. that was a haven for the arts. So I had a an amazing dance studio right there. I had an amazing um, uh, pottery teacher that I was taking from. I had uh, a really fantastic um, uh, local community college with like a really kick butt art department. Um, nice. And so I was just in this renaissance of like, I was trying all the things, (laughs) you know, visual art. And I was reading books on art therapy and realizing like, oh, this is really cool. And reading Sark um, Mm -hmm. and uh, The Artist's Way, of course, and realizing like, wow, this is really, this is so who I am. This is what I want to do. And at that point, I was already quite into photography. I had taken some, like a little bit in college and I had a. Uh, a really close, well, a boyfriend that, <laughs> that was also teaching me. So um, I was pretty deeply into it. So anyway, so then I realized that, you know, doing the activist work wasn't, wasn't for me, it was stressful in a different way. And I wanted to work on the yeah. personal transformation. I was having personal transformation through art. And so art and therapy together, art therapy. So then I started taking all my prerequisites and ended up at Leslie in Cambridge, Mass. So Nice. And I'm curious, so when you are on an art therapy track, um, what type of art is part of that track? Like, what is it you need to learn as a a teacher? So you can come in with any previous kind of interest or focus, because really, as a creative endeavor, you can really use anything. But, you know, you should and need to train in a variety of media, right? So you need Mm -hmm. drawing, painting, sculpture, Um, You know, and that means clay, that means paper mache, that means, um, you know, could be printmaking. And then at Leslie, you get trained in the other therapies, some as well. So you get some psychodrama and some drama therapy and some music therapy and some movement dance therapy. And that was why I went there, because I loved that 
interdisciplinary approach. And it made sense to me. Yeah. So did you lean towards one of the media more than the other? Uh, yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm much more 2D generally, although I do sometimes do more sculptural things for sure. Like I quite like paper mache. Now that I do a lot of paper cuts, sometimes I like to let that and, and, and my books are extremely like pop-ups and 3D type stuff that happens. They move. Yeah. Do you, have you ever tried to sell your artwork or is it, it serves a different purpose for you? Yeah, I don't much sell. I mean, I have at times and I will at times, but mostly I'm focused on uh, making a living through offering the techniques to others and then using my work as a way to see who it wakes up that creative urgent. Yeah. Well, do you think, have you seen either with your clients or maybe even yourself that when, when the artwork shifts from being um, something that's an interest or it's a tool to it's a profession, it's it, you are selling and you're making money from it. Do you see something shift in your clients that's either positive, negative, noticeable? I don't know. I feel like I hear more from people when they haven't come to me yet. Right. And they're, they're just, you know, starting to, you know, either do my live slow drawings or whatever. And they're commenting online and they're saying, I'm really stuck. And then they keep talking and then they say, you know, how they feel stuck because they're trying to make money off of creating art and they're not that far into their process either. And so they're basically like, creating in this very stuck place of like, I'm making this because I think mm -hmm. this is what someone wants to see. And it's very cart before the horse kind of thing. And, and I get the, like for some folks, it's like, Hey, I really need money. I see this as an Avenue, but those folks in my experience stay stuck and end up either not making art or being really not satisfied by it because the whole thing is having the, rich process and process oriented and the joy. And that's where the really interesting ideas and work come from. And they can't develop if you don't give that space. Yeah, well, let's actually let's talk for a minute about the book, because that's probably the newest thing in your world right now. And so draw yourself calm, draw slow, mm -hmm. stress less. And I was very grateful to, to receive it because um <laughs> I, I realized after I started going through it that it it was working on two levels for me. Number one, um, I'm always kind of beating myself up that I don't have more of a mindfulness practice. You know, anytime that I intentionally start a, mm. a, a work session in my studio with some mindfulness, with meditation, it always goes better. You know, duh, you would think, okay, so if it's working, why not keep doing it every time? But I don't. I get busy and then I don't do it. And then the second part is um, just a tortured relationship with sketchbook and, and feeling <laughs> like I don't have a sketchbook practice and I should. I'm a professional artist. I should have a sketchbook practice and I start and I stop and I start and I stop. All of that. And, and I guess to some extent, judgment layer on top of all that because it's not really flowing. So what was to me... Yeah. Um, fascinating about your book is that it relieved a lot of those pressures on and kind of was like killing two birds with one stone of doing both. So before I share sort of my own experience, tell us how did this book come to be? And, and maybe for those who haven't seen it yet, and of course, we'll have all the links. Tell us what will we find in the book? Yeah, sure. So draw yourself calm. Well, first of all, I'm very excited to hear more about your process, of course, because that's 
you know, totally what one hopes for. And so I'm so glad it got into the right hands. Um, and I'm really eager to hear more about uh, what, you know, kind of what came from it for you. Um, so Draw Yourself Calm is um, born out of, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I started, uh, well, I was aware straight away, right? So we were in the midst of all of the well, continues, but very much in a very hot moment of social unrest and racial unrest. And we were also locked down. And I was aware how lucky I was to and how privileged I was to be here in the studio doing the same work I had been doing, right? Mm -hmm. I had been providing online art classes and live experiences. And so like my work life really didn't change at all. Mm -hmm other than there were a lot more people at home who needed it. <laughs> yeah, it probably grew. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and so I was like, what can I do? You know, what can I do to give to people and to give back? And so I started doing these live, weekly slow drawing classes where I had come up with a series of nature based patterns, because uh, I really adore all of the patterns in nature. And so I had started coming up with a bunch of these. And I realized it was kind of a it was something that interested me enough that I could carry it on for, I didn't know how long, mm -hmm. but a while. Yeah. And um, so I've continued to do that ever since. I don't know how long I'll keep doing it, but as long as it's still rewarding and fun, it's hugely rewarding for students. And, you know, people have told me over and over again how it's helped them through all of this time and it's, yeah. you know, woken them up to their art process. I mean, it's just clearly struck something with not just me. Yeah. And so um, I took 25 of my favorite and students favorite patterns mm -hmm. from those teaching sessions and distilled them into a book that gives both a step by step on how to do each of the patterns, but then always infused with tons of invitations for innovation. Because my hope is, you know, I want to give people a structure that holds them, right? Like you have a starting place with, let's say you're going to do step one through eight to get this wave mm -hmm. pattern, mm -hmm. let's say. But I also want to create so much space for when you feel ready to then start changing things yeah. and asking yourself, what if, and taking this pattern to a place that's not as much Amy as it is Christy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really important to me because, you know, otherwise it would be a different thing like Zentangle or something like that. Right. Um, and I'm really interested in helping people get very deeply into their really rich, exploratory, exciting art process that's going to bring them back again and again and again. So obviously there's a lot of that philosophy in the book as well. Mm -hmm. And I love, you know, one of the things that you really promote is working small. Maybe mm -hmm. talk about that. Yeah, well, for me, that's really been a key. And of course, you know, I, I kind of want to be quick to say it, it's, you know, like everything, take what works for you and leave the rest, sure. right? So for me, it has really worked. And for a lot of my students, it has really worked to work small, because it's just so doable, right? It's portable, it's doable in small bits of time, it uses less materials, so it's more economic. And most importantly for me, I find it just invites me to 
iterate and explore and try things multiple times, multiple ways. And then it turned out that, you know, I found that I could put lots of those bits together and start to create much bigger art pieces. And then, of course, other times take an idea that I had done on a small card that fit in my hand and then expanded onto something, you know, much bigger than that. Yeah. And, and so just for our listeners, um, I know one of the things you promote, and I'm going to confess, I haven't yet done, but working small, like literally on, what do you usually say, three by three-ish pieces of watercolor paper? Sure, something like that. Something that fits in your hand. Anytime you see something, I think, in quantity, it gets more interesting, or you start to pick up different yes. um, nuances of it, or it has a different story and meaning when you see it in quantity. So, And, and it's funny, like, yes. um, I haven't yet done that, but I can totally see how that would be useful for me and probably for others. Number one, it gets over the sort of the stumbling block for some folks, the, okay, I have this journal. It's beautiful. Oh, my God, I just put a mark in it. Yeah. You know? And so with a little piece of paper, it's just a little piece of paper, whatever. And and there does, I think, take a bit of that weight pressure off of mm-hmm. the beautiful journal that needs to be filled with. And actually, that that leads me to something I wanted to ask you. Do you see a difference between an art journal, and a sketchbook. Yeah, everyone defines this differently. But for me, they're all the same. Like I have some journals that are quite finished. And, you know, and they may or may not start out that way. Right? Like this one that I have all collaging in started out as kind of a anything. So she is holding up this beautiful little handmade book, maybe five by five. What is that? This is... It's got beautiful stitching and a cover. Four by five. And it's gorgeous. And so, and and every page is gorgeous. I see some handwriting on some, some are multiple, some are just big, almost washes of color, little bits and bobs of color here and there. So for you, this book, oh gosh, I could just sit here and look at this all day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What will you do with that book? Like, what does that book do in your life? Yeah, so... Let me let me hold me to that question in a second, but let me back up and answer your first question. So sometimes like often I'll have a journal where it's just like, I don't know what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have sort of purpose. I just start doing whatever I want to do in it. I stick it in my bag. I stick a pen in my bag and then that goes with me so I can do art in the in-between moments because yeah. that's one of my big secrets to making more art. Um But so like that journal, for example, started out as a very much anything goes. And then I don't know, at some point recently, I think I had used it when I was demoing something when I was teaching and that was quite nice. And then there was another page that was quite nice. And I started to see a a number of pages that looked really finished. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes when that happens, I will start to convert it over to a more finished piece. Right. So the whole thing is a piece of art. Uh, And so I will do things like the painted pages you saw were Mm -hmm. covered up other things that just had like notes or doodles or, you know, figuring out kind of drawings or testing, that kind of thing. Actually, that answers possibly one of the questions I was just saying. Let's say you have started this book and it's got all these lovely things. And then there's some not lovely things in there. Mm-hmm. What what do you do with that? And it's already bound and beautiful. And yep. so you don't want to cut it out. So did I just hear you say you might just paint over the whole thing? Yeah, I might. Or I might use my X-Acto knife and cut out, say, a circle and then put a paper cut 
screen mm-hmm. over. And so now you have this other really interesting element that starts to change. So the page before the page after gets changed mm. and they be, they have like multiple versions. Yeah. And I do a lot with paper cut journals that way where each page just keeps transforming. I love this. And actually, it's funny, while we're having this conversation, I'm realizing that some of my best um, moments as an artist progressing is when I realized a medium how I could make it forgivable for myself and not feel like I was trapped. And so like for encaustic, the minute I learned you can scrape it all off or dig down into it, I was like, I'm in. And, And so hearing that, it's like, oh. Okay, then just be creative with how you undo or overdo or so redo. That's so that's so interesting because I, I feel like I want to, as a fellow artist, I want to reflect that back to you, how much you need a sense of flexibility Yeah, in yeah. your art forms. And like, as I would, you're... I would take it a step further and say in life, you know, yeah. <laughs> as in art, as in life. As you're figuring out with the book, as you're figuring out what, format, let's say, works for you, that's going to be your invitation, right? How do I make this as flexible as possible? Or what does that flexibility mean specifically? What do I need? And I I think it's really helpful to take little notes about those things as you notice them. Mm. And then, you know, and that's definitely something I do in my journals. And I have plenty of journals where it's just, it's that kind of thing, right? Like, oh, you know, I'm noticing that you know, I love having the flexibility to paint over a page or, you know, or I like having another journal where it really is a mishmash. It's not pretty. It's not something that you would, you know, be like, hey, I'm on Instagram. Look at what I just did. Right. right. It's the space where, you know, you can just figure stuff out. In fact, here, I'll show you my other one that is for sure in that vein. And, you know, I've just I'm like testing out shapes and yeah, yeah whatnot and testing patterns. These are still very beautiful. So make sure we take photos of the ones you're showing me so that we can tell people. But I like this. You're showing me there's handwriting. There's, It's not just a, a scripted scene on a page. There's many doodling kind of yeah. things going on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very much test pages. Yeah. Right. And some of these then become something that's more finished. But like, right. yeah, and I've got notes from a training I took. It really is just, you know, whatever. But then, like, I have a very finished page in the midst right. of that. One of the things I'm, I'm enjoying about exploring with your book is not only when I use it, when, when I try some of these practices. Is it morning? Is it right before I'm in the studio and I start a, a, an art session? Mm-hmm. Is it in the evening? Yeah. And, and trying that, and I th- I'm finding that freeing. And then I think the next phase, too, I'm going to try exploring a little more, like, Right now, I've just grabbed one of my many uh, sketchbooks that I can work in, but trying separate loose papers again and sort of seeing if that feels different. But what I've noticed right off the bat is um, I think I have a tendency when I come into my art practice, I start moving pretty quickly and moving around pretty ah. fast. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um and at least I'm in a phase right now in my career where I'm always feeling a little behind the gun and that I need to get some right. stuff for work finished. Um, and by doing this, I realized, um, even in the beginning, I, w- I was drawing fast, I was making the patterns fast, I was going quick, 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 and then it was like, no, slow down. And actually trying to, you know, whether it was like you talk about hearing the pen, seeing the pen, watching it flow, and and literally stopping myself to 
do the mindfulness breathing that I know to do in yoga and other places and do it while mm-hmm. I create art. And I, I don't know that I've ever actually thought about those two things in the same box, you know, that yeah. what's going on in your body as you're creating this work. And that, that's that been a really interesting sort of process for me to think about. Um, yeah. To, I love yeah, that. It's very, very, very interesting. Well, let's go back. I'd actually love to go back to your early days of therapy, if you don't mind, just because I think that's a sure. a really interesting field. There's this overlap. And I think particularly as an artist, I don't know that much about it. And I'm so fascinated by how, what role it plays in a practice. So when you started your therapy work as a professional, uh, am I right that early on in your career, you were working more with community-based programs? Yeah, I was doing, my first job was at a wonderful organization called the Latin American Health Institute in Boston. So I was working with Latin, mostly Latino families in Boston. Yeah. And in what way would did art start making a presence in that practice? Uh, well, I mean, it was great because uh, Latino families tend to be a lot more open, actually, <laughs> mm, <laughs> to the arts mm-hmm. than than a lot of the white folks that I've worked with. Um, it's like an easier transition. Not that white folks aren't. They are. But um, I think there's a little bit more affinity to the arts. And it, it feels a little less foreign to just suddenly pull out some art materials or music or whatever it might be. Um so is your question like how do you use art in therapy or Well so in that with that community give me give us an example um would folks be coming to a a spot and creating work or are you going to them and and, and how might you actually work with them in that environment Yeah so I worked in home based which meant that I went to their homes um which is a great model and um typical for me because I was trained as an expressive therapist, I might start with something where, um, you know, maybe we were doing when we were first getting to know each other, we might do something even movement based, especially if the kids are smaller, um, you know, just to get to like, introduce ourselves and that kind of thing. Or, um, you know, one I really liked is like, you have a ball of yarn, you pass it one person to another. And as each person takes their part of the string to hang on to it, then there's some, you know, you can use this in a lot of ways, but there's something that they say. So if it was an intro thing, maybe it would be one important thing that I am hoping to get out of, you know, family therapy, for example. And so, you know, maybe the father would, you know, hold the one end and he would say what he's hoping to get. And the one kid would take their end and say what they're hoping to get et cetera, et cetera. And then I would take it and say what I was hoping to get, um, which would generally be something about um, understanding them as a family and their needs and helping them to meet their goals kind of thing. Right. And then from there, maybe we would be using, um, you know, I'd have lots of magazine cutouts and they would work together as a family to um, put together a uh, you know, a scene that described, you know, one of their goals or something, for example, right? So like, if we were building on the first thing I said, each of them then might use the magazine collage materials and have their own page, where they create their goal in pictorial form. And then if they're old enough, they would write about it a little bit. And then everyone shares together and talks together about, and that really facilitates 
really rich conversation because now you have all these visuals to work with. And there's also this metaphor now we've created with the web, with the yarn about the connections between the family and, and at this point, a connection to me in the work. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. At some point, you transitioned and created your own private practice. And so how does it how does it shift then? So now you're working with individuals. How's that mm-hmm. different? And to be clear, lots of people do family therapy and um, private practice. I just wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the techniques are very similar. It's just you're working one-on-one with somebody. And I was mostly working with um, uh, teen girls and young women principally. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's really about using all of those creative formats in the same sort of way that I just described, but, you know, could be drawing, painting, sculpture. And it's a lot of engaging the imagination too. Like I'm remembering one, uh, imagine that you've walked into a museum and, you know, you're seeing this art piece and like, and so you use, a scene, set up a scene in the person's imagination or, you know, they set it up, obviously, but it gives this suggestion that then they can use to project and see things Mm. differently because we see things very differently when we think it's ours versus when we think it's someone else's. And so that's something I carry over to as a teacher. Like I often say, close your eyes. And then when you reopen them, pretend you're looking at someone else's work, friend of yours, somebody online and see what you think of the work through that lens. Yeah. Yeah. And notice how for most people, it's quite different (laughs) and much more forgiving and (laughs) interesting. Well, you mentioned that a lot of the work you were doing was with, uh, young women or, or women. And I'm curious, um, do you see a difference in how are, are there gender differences in how men and women use art, see art, practice arts? I don't think so. I mean, no, and I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think that uh, honestly, the first thing that's coming to me is just, um, you know, realizing how much we're starting to get such a well, just starting to get a much better understanding about gender and gender fluidity. And I certainly had uh, the great fortune of working with a few kids, actually, the in-between job between the private practice and the uh, home-based work was I was working at a residential, and I had the great fortune of working with some really amazing folks who were trans. And it was such an invaluable experience for me because it just, you know, taught me so much. And was really helpful to me to understand. And, you know, now that it's becoming some so much more open, at least in some parts of the US, um, which is, you know, I can't speak to other countries, but um, I don't know, I just feel like I've come into it with a little bit more, like I have more person, of course, I know people now and everything. But you know, before that, it was just not familiar to me. But I, I mean, you know, it, like if the question is if the men that I worked with were less open than the women. Or maybe in how they approached the art making, the art format. And, you know, was it? I didn't notice that. I think I think that perhaps there was a sense that 
Mate, I, I no, I think I think I'm really pushing. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, no, no. The answer part. no is a perfectly good answer. <laughs> I, I think what made me think about it is when I go to workshops or, you know, even um, I think about a lot of the artists I see that are out there on Instagram. A large majority of them are women. Yes, and and so you know what is that? And and there is always I think. Um, Always is the wrong word, but there's a tendency for women to be, I think, kind of hypercritical of their own work, and that that is often a stumbling block I see with folks that I work with. Sure. Of, um, it's just like what you were saying with your yeah. first example of when you look at your own work, you see something totally different than when I look at your work. It's you know, there's this different lens I put yeah. on, and so what is that? And is there is that a gender thing? And and or is it just sort of random that there are more women right now who are interested in taking workshops and putting the work out on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, I think I want to clarify, I think part of the reason that I don't have a lot of opinion to share about differences across any gender is because when I was in residential, I worked with all genders, but in private practice, I practically did not see anybody except for folks who identified as female. So, um, And as a teacher, yes, the grand majority of people taking my stuff are female or female identified, um, mostly. So I don't think I get a lot of exposure to be able to even answer that well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's go to more like back to some of those stumbling blocks. And I I know I've heard you say before that um, that people have a hunger to make art. Um, but that we feel like we need permission mm. to make art. And, and why, do you, why do you think that is? Why is it that we feel like we need this permission to do this versus I don't feel like I need permission to go play pickleball, you know? So why? What's the difference there? Yeah, I mean, um, I believe I'm attributing this correctly. I think it was big magic that Elizabeth Gilbert talked about this issue really articulately. Mm. And... So, well, let me back up. So I would say there's a lot in our society about art and there's these myths that artists of all types, you know, across the arts are sort of born talented, especially with visual art. Yeah. For some reason, um, you know, whether it's 2D or 3D. Uh, I think it comes in a little bit with dance, but less so. It seems like when you get into a physical realm, people don't expect mm-hmm. you to show up on the basketball court magically knowing how to be amazing at this, that, and the other skill. And there is right. the idea that you obviously right. must practice and work hard. But with art, we have that myth that because there are some people who are prodigies, right? I mean, they just, I had a few people mm-hmm. in my high school who, I'm sure also, I I know, worked very hard, but their level of skill just from the get-go was just so astronomically beyond everybody else's. And I think the fact that there are some of those folks and the fact that when we see art at this point, it is a professionalized thing most of the time. And so we see the end point we see the end of the journey. We see the finish line of the marathon. And we typically don't see all yeah. of the pieces that led up to and came into that one sculpture, painting, 
whatever it might be. And so it creates this myth that you either have talent or you don't have talent. And so there's a lot of people, and I'm sorry, I don't know who said this, but comparing their beginning to somebody else's end, which is a losing proposition. Well, and I think I've heard you say before, too, there's um, the only difference between someone who identifies as an artist and one who doesn't is the latter just doesn't know yet. I mean, I think I think we're all just very creative. And this is the Elizabeth Gilbert thing, right? She talked about in uh, Big Magic about how we the the most creative beings evolved into us, this population living on the earth right now. We are the ones who were the most creative. The less creative thinking beings died off and did not evolve into who we are today. So, you know, we had to be insanely creative to survive. And then she talks, too, about how not only that, but we are unnecessarily creative. Like even thousands of years ago, people were decorating useful things like pots and clothing and adorning their bodies and across all cultures. So it's something innate in us to be creative, to enjoy, and there's that word joy, to enjoy making things beautiful, expressing emotion through creative action. And so for me, you can be insanely creative at spreadsheets. You can be highly creative at telling jokes. You can be creative in storytelling, in the way you make your food. Right. And to dismiss that, I think, to me, is totally missing the point. Right. About what creativity is and the way that it lives in each and every one of us. Right. Right. And, and you know, you don't judge your pot roast in the same way you might uh, a watercolor. And so why right. can't we be that forgiving in whatever shape or form that creativity takes and just, and, and honestly to value it in the same way. Like I, I am, I'm right there with you and convinced that, you know, we've all bought into that. We need exercise. That doesn't mean I can go run a marathon or that I should try out for the Olympic, mm-hmm. whatever team. But, but I know I'm not at my best self if I'm not doing right. some exercise. Right. But I think that's just true of, from a creative standpoint, too. If you don't right. have some outlet, if you're not doing that, you're actually clogging up or, or closing a door to something that will make you feel whole. And you may not even realize it because you aren't doing it. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, just again, back to the I think it's our human nature mm-hmm. to want mm-hmm. to do that and to need to do that. Yeah. And I wanted to just circle back to what you were saying about tying together your mindfulness practice and your art. And for me, that, that connection of the two and settling into, right, like art is completely full of invitations and opportunities to arrive in the moment. Right. It is by nature, a sensory experience. There's sounds, there's things you see, there's sensory cues in your hands and, you know, whatever else you're working with. I just think it's so important to um, highlight the way that, to me, they are intimately connected. And it's like, an, to me, it's a much easier way to practice mindfulness. And to me, and everyone's different, but for me personally, it's an easier way than closing my eyes and focusing just 
on my breath. Well, the one thing that it's I've been thinking about is so at least the way I create, there's a very intuitive part to it where you know, not to get kind of woo-woo, but you're sort of, it's a little out of body. You know, you're having yeah. this interaction with the art. It sort of does something. You respond to it. And yeah. and it's not completely of my doing. You know, that sounds odd, but I, I think do. a yeah. lot of artists no, can no. relate to that. And yet there's this other side of it where like, okay, um, particularly as a working artist, I, I need it to get to some end product or I'm wanting it to get to some end product so that I'm trying to give yeah. some intentional thought at some point in that process. Yeah, to oh, yeah. it. And it certainly maybe not start there. But so um, being trying to be in both places at one time that, you know, there reaches a point in, yep. in a in a work where you're those two are kind of clashing. And I do think what's really nice about your practice is it starts to allow you to see how you can do both, that you are doing it and you're aware that you're doing it, but maybe because it's the repetition, it's sort of in its own little zone, its own little rhythm, but you are very aware of what's happening and knowing that you can slow it down, you can speed it up, you can stop it, you can, Mm -hmm. you're observing it and you're there and you're part of it and it's still going on its own. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I talk about dancing between being in that aware of your senses, observing, slowly creating place, and then stepping back, right? You're holding your piece at arm's length. You're standing, you know, several feet away. You're turning the canvas or the paper and you're considering composition and then you're back in it and you're in and out. But for me and for a lot of my students, coming continually back to that open observing place where I'm watching things happen and noticing in my body Like, for example, one of the things I talk about is not just what looks good, but tuning into what would feel good to do. So I'm between that and, oh, over here, it would be important to, I need to balance. This is getting heavy over here. I need to add something over on this side. Yeah. But I'm back and forth between those two. So they're both in action. But I find I know better what the next right step is when I'm in that slow observant place. Well, I noticed at one point early on when I was trying to go really slow, I was holding my breath. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's an awkward it's a very thing funny thing. It was just like, why aren't you breathing? Yeah. There's no reason why yeah. you can't breathe right now. And yeah. so but again, just being aware of like, okay, that was that was your initial reaction. You know, you can obviously change that I can make myself and right. be conscious of breathing. But that that was where the knee jerk went to was just really interesting. So yeah, and really, totally common and also speaks to your oh, look, your awareness is already there well right. done right? <laughs> gold star for me there <laughs> yes well I, while we're talking about this kind of going in and out of things I would love to segue to talking about how you balance your your practice with the business side and mm-hmm. you know so for for those of folks who don't know you as well, like you have been blogging for years. You were a podcast trailblazer, I think, you know, six years ago. That's like, you're, you're, you're one of the original ones, if that's the case. <laughs> and oh then God, you've got like two seconds. Yeah, well, you know, it counts. <laughs> it counts. Um, a YouTube channel, you've, you know, done interviews for the New York Times. So there's a lot of part of your work where, whether it's marketing or business side of it. So I guess first, how, how do you make time for those? How does that fit into your your daily, weekly life? So for me, I mean, yeah, there's a huge amount of business work that goes into 
my model, right, where I'm mm-hmm. teaching, and then that's how I'm making my living as an artist. And, and let's actually, let's stop right there. Do you teach how many days a week or how often do you teach? Okay, structure-wise, we'll start with every single week, just about. I have some, I've learned to build in break weeks, but um, typically every single week, I do a live slow drawing on Wednesdays for an hour. Um, and obviously, there's a lot more that goes into that one hour. I then also uh, offer that on 48-hour replay. So there's, you know, work involved in all of that. Um, and then from there, it varies. Like this past weekend, I was teaching at Snow Farm in Massachusetts, wonderful art and craft um, learning space, you know, in the Berkshires, really beautiful. Um, and next month, I'll be in Florala, Alabama. It'll be really cool. That's going to be a nature drawing retreat. And, um, you know, I'm in the midst of needing to decide precisely what I'm live teaching in October. (laughs) And if I'm live teaching in October and what format will that take? But typically uh, in a typical time, you know, I usually do a longer retreat format, which is at this point I've started doing like two afternoons, a Thursday and Friday afternoon. Um, Or I'll do sometimes a shorter format, what I call a master class, which is a two and a half hour like one shot kind of thing that is recorded, but the live retreat format is live. Like it's not recorded, you know, you're there and it's meant to be as close to being in the flesh together (laughs) as possible, um, you know, in, in the same space. Do you have help for all this? Like how, how do you manage the logistics of filming? Um, I pretty much do mostly everything. (laughs) I actually always think that's important for people to know because I as well. And, um, for the vast majority of us who take on these either extra projects or expanded projects, um, certainly early on and maybe always you're doing it yourself. We we all don't come with a host of, um, assistants and studio assistants. Right. And yeah, so like I just finished up last week doing uh, my book launch in the US. And then also I was doing an inchy challenge, which is a it you wouldn't think it, you know, it's an email that comes out every day and then folks post online and everything. But it is a massive amount of work for me, like massive. And I have to really pace myself and everything. What did you call it? An inchy challenge. Like inch, like inch long? Yeah, so <laughs> it's, um, I use the word inchy a little loosely. It's we do each day. So I do this yearly in the summer. So each day for 11 days, you do a, at least one two by two square of something, uh-huh. anything. And then I have a prompt that comes through the email each day and some inspiring tidbits and this, that, and the other. Nice. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, things like that are insanely massively labor intensive for me. So that's another way of teaching too. Cause right. Cause obviously I'm, you know, offering tidbits in the emails, I'm responding to people, I'm encouraging them to reflect on their takeaways and what does this say about their practice and what bits from the challenge then can teach them. Right. But I'm always doing that in my classes too. And there's a, you know, I do a lot of writing, not just for the book, but like every time I present a class, most of my bigger media classes also have a written PDF so that, you know, different folks can access it. 
So it kind of varies. Like this week, I need to work on a guest teaching thing that I'm doing for someone else. I'm also in the midst of doing promotion for another guest teaching spot. Um, I have a um, book signing tomorrow that I'm doing nearby, which is exciting. And, um, and in between, I'm, you know, needing to attend to real life. And then also, obviously, uh, it's one of those weeks where I'm not going to get to do nearly as much art as I want to. So I have to put it in, in the in between. So like when I go to karate and sit and watch my son tonight, I will be somewhat watching him and also working on some small bits of paper, just like I do in the book and working in a series and exploring, like right now I'm working on these watercolor backgrounds that look like kind of like a pink sunset or something. And then like these dot cloud formations that that's also something that's in the book. So, um, but then there's other weeks, like pretty soon I'm hopeful that I will have like a little bit of a, a downtime where I get more time to just, you know, have several days where I can just explore in the studio and come back to a more open place. But the way that I have things set up, anytime I get into something and I'm excited, then I'm excited about it. So I want to share it. And so then I create a class from it, like a, usually a pre-recorded, but sometimes a live experience, um, just depending on what it is. And I want to say something about the help part. So I did last year start hiring someone just to, cut out the beginning and like add the like logo and stuff to these weekly, you know, live workshops that I do that then I resell in my site because I found that uh, it took me much longer because I would start going through and nitpicking on ums and likes and blah, 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 and much better just to have someone go in and very cleanly just put in the intro, the outro and, you know, add the part where it says my name and, you know, cut out the transition from, when the camera's looking at me to when it's looking at my table and done deal. And so I have help for that. I have someone who's supports me when I'm on live so that there's a tech person and I can just focus on teaching. And then I've started having someone help me also, um, posting the, when I create like the events for the slow drawing Facebook things, Mm-hmm. And then also um, creating the class out of it on my site. I'm sort of training somebody to do that. So um, it's like simple things that seem like, oh, it's not a big deal, yeah. but there's so much, so much work behind it. <laughs> so I have a, a little bit of help on very specific tasks, but mostly everything is still totally me like every email every social media comment every class every the you know it's, yeah. it's me that's I mean I think that's really lovely but it is um and it sounds like for you that those pieces of it are still fun for you and so that um there's joy in doing it and yeah it's very creative yeah. like I love creating classes yeah I love creating classes yeah uh, that's an art form in itself yeah I, you know sometimes if for those of us who struggle, maybe that's the way to think of it is that that's a different art form. And can you find your version of that art form mm-hmm. that fits for you? But I think that's nice. Well, I have a huge um, request. Okay. I was hoping maybe you would walk us through a bit of a mindful exercise today. And I don't know what that means for you, but would you be willing to do that? Of course I would. All right. Well, what shall we do? And if anybody's driving, please save it for later. 
Yeah. <laughs> Talk to us while you're driving. <laughs> Feels like that goes on. Shouldn't go. I don't need to say that. So what shall I grab? If you have it, grab a waterproof pen. If you don't have a waterproof pen and a little piece of watercolor paper, then grab whatever you've got. It will work. But I like uh, a waterproof pen because then if I want to add watercolor later, it won't bleed. And I like the watercolor paper. For those of you who don't frequently buy pens, these Pigma Microns are lovely. Do you have a point size that you like? I mean, I use the O1 probably the most. Um, I'm still researching to find like a fountain pen or something that's not plastic that's refillable, but I haven't found the thing yet. So for the moment, I still recommend the Microns. So actually, before we even begin, I like to start, and this is going to be very abbreviated compared to what I normally do, but I like to start with just kind of arriving into my body. And it's important to just take your own um, inner wisdom on board. And anything that I invite that feels right, roll with it. Anything that doesn't, change it, let it go. So if you wish, you might allow eyes to gently come closed or have a soft focus on the table in front of you or something in front of you. And just beginning to arrive into this present place. You might begin to notice through one of the senses what you notice, what makes up this moment. Perhaps you notice the chair that you're sitting in. In the places where you make contact with the chair. You might notice the way that the chair accepts your weight and holds it up for you. You might notice the way your back just rests into the back of the chair. You might notice where your hands are resting and always making any little changes or adjustments to find a bit more comfort. And just noticing the natural way in which your hands rest wherever they are, whether that's on the lap, perhaps on the table. Noticing where they make contact either with your leg or the table, which points of the hand are resting, which points are not touching. And you might circle around to the breath, noticing the breath that shows up in this moment. If you wish, you might allow a nice sigh. When you feel ready, you might begin to welcome a bit more movement into the body and just notice what that feels like. Whenever movements feel good to you and nourishing, then you can allow the eyes to gently float open. And then you can pick up your pen 
And we're just going to, instead of drawing, we're going to notice what it's like to move the pen across the page. And if you wish, you can do this with your eyes open or closed, with your writing hand or your not, your non-dominant hand, but see how slowly you can allow the pen to just take a little journey across the page in whatever way feels right. So we're not making art, just noticing, just like we did in the meditation, what it feels like to hold this pen on this page today. And so the more slowly you move, and much more slowly than you think, really exploring how slowly can I move my pen and still keep it moving? Is there a slow way to move my pen that feels delicious or nurturing? And if the eyes are open, then you can begin to watch the way the ink arrives onto the page. can notice whether the line ever loses contact or skips. You might experiment with allowing a very gentle grip on the pen. Not even a grip, but a gentle holding, almost like you were holding a baby bird. What would it be like to hold the pen like that and still move it across the page and allow it to explore the space? Almost like you pretend that this is a very, very tiny ant on a little journey in this big space. And it's just checking things out, just exploring the different spaces within this little box or field. might feel good to see, can I actually go slower? Or what would happen if I went a bit faster? And what does that feel like? 
then coming back again to see what slow feels like, or very slow, or barely moving. And just allowing the breath And when it feels okay, you'll bring the movement of the pen to a pause. And if you've allowed eyes to close, you can open them. And just come more back present to the room. And then I like to turn my little piece of paper, and I like to hold it at arm's length, and just see what little areas I find interesting. And I like to reflect on what felt good today, right, movement-wise. So, Christy, would you be all right saying what your experience was? Yes, I the the different grips on the pen is always interesting for me because I think kind of similar maybe to even talk about the breath like my initial is to grab it (laughs) and really hold on tight like that's gonna make it better and so and and when it got too loose that felt a little out of control almost and and I look at those lines and they definitely look like an unsure person mm. to me or, mm-hmm. or an unsure line, mm-hmm. I guess. But there was somewhere relatively early on that it, it, it felt like a nice, like, okay, this is slow, but it's not gripping mm-hmm. and, and learning to see what those differences are. But again, you know, and that, that moment of just breathe and just, watch like that's all you have to do here like, yeah there's, there's not an answer yes. here you know it's your only job right or wrong <laughs> it's that's all I have yes. to do <laughs> I love that I, I love this and I love that um, like I said for me getting away from a, a sketchbook or an art journal needing to have a purpose that it's it's you know it's somehow driving my practice it's improving me in some way that felt like a lot of weight and so getting back to first of all my work involves patterning and and repetition and so it's interesting that that this is very calming to me and I realize like if when I find a nice calm with the like with your book that channeling that then when I'm actually working on much larger pieces is a good transition Mm. and it's it's quite helpful actually for my practice. So I'm oh, that's so great. I'm excited to keep to keep exploring with it and trying to keep that mindset. And I appreciate so much for this opportunity to talk to you personally and but also for the work that you're doing and sharing it with others. So it what's the best way for folks who I'm assuming they can get the book anywhere. Um yes. Amazon, yeah. Barnes yep. & Noble, all the great places. But if they just want to learn more about you, maybe want to work with you, what where do you like to send people? Yeah, so first, I loved hearing your takeaways, and I so am appreciative of the chance to talk together and have a little experience together that's really special. And if folks want to learn more, they can visit me at mindfulartstudio.com. 
Um, and I'm at Amy Maracle on um, Instagram. And it's a miracle, not miracle. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again so much. And I look forward to staying in touch. Me too. Thank you so much, Christy, for having me on. This was really such a, a, a pleasure of a conversation. Well, that wraps it up for us today. You can find Amy online at mindfulartstudio.com or on Instagram at Amy Maracle. That's A-M-Y-M-A-R-I-C-L-E. Amy's approach of mindfully connecting pen to paper is such a gift during this busy time of year. Now, when I feel like I don't have an extra minute to spare, now is the moment I realize I need slow drawing the most to take just a moment or two to remind myself of the basics, to remember to just breathe, to be still and just notice where I am, what I'm doing, and remind myself it's all okay. As Richard Carlson famously said, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. So I will try my very small, slow drawings and let the other things settle around me. Maybe you'll give it a try too. Until next time, stay kind, stay positive, and keep swimming.